0: let's pray father we we do want to give you the highest praise that is certainly our intention we we know that you alone are worthy of that and god i just can't help but think of how many times in my own life even this past week that i have not treated you with that sort of exclusivity with that sort of worthiness. And so Lord, I pray as we examine today a little bit your heart for us and how you view us and your great love for us, that we would see you in the end perhaps is more worthy than we see you now. Pray that you would do that work, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every year, people all over our country, once a year, put a whole lot of effort into pretending to be someone or something they're not. Case in point, go ahead and there we go. This is... I want to give a little context, because you're looking at that like, what in the world? Uh, Years ago, I've learned in Westchester folklore, there was a certain Halloween party where everyone put a lot of effort into dressing up to be someone they're not, and the goal was to guess who was who. This, indeed, is not one, but two people. (laughs) This is actually a, a married couple from our church in costume, and I'm not going to tell you who it is. But in an effort to increase the, uh, I know who it is, uh, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but in an effort to increase the fellowship of our church, what I want you to do is if you think you know who it is, go up to them and ask them, was that you? And, uh, and just keep doing that until you find out. I thought about having a prize, uh, but I don't. Uh, I mean, just that you have satisfied that. So moving on, um, <clears throat> while costumes can be fun and goofy, I think there's a whole lot of people that maybe Halloween, uh, certainly not that couple, but but other people where Halloween may may indeed be a more honest day than the rest for them. As they would much rather be someone other than who they are. They would much rather have a different sort of personality, a different look to them than the one they have, a different uh, pretend background. And they're there's a whole lot of time and energy spent by, by many and, and by us in different ways in projecting not so much who we really are, but a highly curated version of who we are, perhaps a costume-like version of who we are. I think if I were to ask you to take time to write out two lists, the top, two different top five lists, the top five things that you wish you could change about yourself and a top five list of, of things you really love about yourself, maybe that first one would get filled in a little bit quicker. That that top five of what we wish we could change would actually come to our mind a lot, a lot faster and is probably living a lot closer to the surface than things we are truly grateful about who we are. And it's interesting, within our culture, with our social fabric, our social imagination, our value system, we have these these two competing things that are are really held up as equal. And one is be your truest self, your most authentic self, be true to who you are. And then at the other side is this constant quest of self-improvement and changing ourselves. So that within the background of be your authentic self, Is this constant barrage of marketing, of diet trends, fashions, clothing made for your size and your body, cosmetic products, a booming cosmetic surgery industry, products that change our hair, give us hair, or remove hair where we don't want it. And cover other blemishes, and that doesn't even begin to touch on the impact of Social media and phone cameras and filters to change who we are, what we look like, in effort to get more likes. Because if we put ourselves out there, those likes would not come as quickly, or so we fear. And this just covers the external appearance of who we are. We haven't yet got into what's underneath the surface. Those things that maybe we try to keep most hidden. If people knew what I really thought, if people knew what I really do, if people knew who I really am, no one would love me. All of our insecurities, social anxieties, and other sources of input that lead us to believe we are generally just not enough. And so I want you to remember last week, we talked about as we, as we examine this idea of casting our burdens on the Lord, this debate table where there's our flesh and there's the word of God. And in this issue of our personal insecurities, our flesh, while it nuances it to many, many different shades and colors, it, it, it generally our flesh has two arguments against us. The first is you're not blank enough. Fill in that blank. You're not fit enough, charming enough, fun enough, attractive enough, funny enough, holy enough. All of it amounting to you are not good enough. And the second argument that our flesh at that that table would want to put forward is this. You can be either known or loved. But if you are fully known, you will not be fully loved. And that, I believe, is the fear that prevents most of us from engaging in true Christian fellowship, from engaging in a truly, fully open walk with the Lord. This idea that there's something so reprehensible within me that if I was truly known, I would also be rejected. But can we be truly loved if we are not truly known? If we are only loved based on a curated version of ourselves, are we really loved? The answer to that is no. And so while we talk about gathering as a fellowship, we talk about we need to be known, we need to know each other, we need to be known by each other. And that's terrifying because that voice of the flesh is really loud. The minute people find out blank, which is most likely a very common sin that we all wrestle with, that I will be rejected. That's the voice of the flesh. For the voice of the Word of God, as it deals with our personal insecurities, I want to look this morning primarily at Psalm 139. And let's see what the, what the psalmist has to say about this idea of, I cannot be fully known and fully loved. The two are mutually exclusive because of who I am. So let's read together. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. bright as the day for darkness is as light with you for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb i praise you for i am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works my soul knows it very well My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them They are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that they, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak evil, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? We have a loud, seemingly unmutable voice of our flesh. And we have the Word of God. And the psalmist here has embraced God's heart for him. And there's, I, I, I want to personalize three things that I think God is saying to us out of this. And then a fourth will be the psalmist's application that I'll invite us to take on. So taking the burden of our personal insecurities to the Lord, what does this mean? It means quieting our critical, boisterous flesh and listening intently to the Word of God where the Lord tells us, I know you. As David describes God's knowledge of him in these these first six verses, he shows God as having this personal, exhaustive knowledge a knowledge that's it's not static like a textbook. It's not clinical like a doctor. It's not distant like an artist knowing the horizon of his painting. But it is personal. It moves far beyond the simple observations to intent, thoughts, dreams, skills, strengths, and weaknesses. This knowledge seems to start a little bit far off. But it doesn't stay there. It gets really close. In fact, this knowledge, as he describes it poetically, is an inside outside knowledge. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. And then it gets really personal. You search out my path, my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows these general actions from afar, the thoughts, the getting up, sitting down, things that you can kind of observe, but he goes much deeper. Our routines, our actions, our words before we even know them. Charles Spurgeon was sometimes criticized for his humor in the pulpit. I've heard that at one point someone was criticizing him for the jokes he would say in the pulpit I think he was my kind of guy. And he said, you think what I say is bad, you should hear what I don't say. I would echo that sentiment. But here's the deal, the Lord knows what Spurgeon didn't say. The Lord knows what I don't say. He knows what you don't say. He knows every word before it reaches our tongue. He knows it when it is still down in our heart, the wellspring of the tongue. He has a creator level knowledge. Have you ever walked through a home with its builder? Or checked out a car with the person who made it or, or restored it? These people, they know where every, you know, looking, looking at a house, you go through a house and someone, someone says, well, I built this house. I had a professor in seminary who had us all over to his home that he had built. And he's telling us about every single wall. He knows where every stud is, every wire and nail. He knows where, I mean, the, sh- the, the walls were flawless, but he knows where every seam of drywall is. He sees the things that no one else can see because he made it from nothing into a home. The Lord can see everything in you and he knows it full well because he created you completely. He has a creator level knowledge. And the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it. He's saying, God, your knowledge of me myself is beyond my knowledge of me myself. And we commonly think of this cosmic knowledge of God as this big knowledge of God. He knows all the planets. He knows all the galaxies and the stars. He set them in place. The knowledge that God has of the universe is the same knowledge he has of you. that the powerful, all-encompassing knowledge of God is personally applied to us. He doesn't just know how many grains of sand are on the beach, but he knows how many hairs are on your head. God's knowledge is wonderful and caring. God's knowledge of you is intentional. God's knowledge of you is complete There's nothing about you. He doesn't know. And before you get worried about that, I want you to also know that God's knowledge of you is good. And and maybe you guys are already ahead of me. You're like, this is a little concerning. Because I don't want someone to know me that well. I don't want to be known that well, because if I'm known that well, I won't be loved. And if God, who is holy, knows my thoughts, my words, my actions, my motives and intent, should I then be worried about His love or commitment to stay with me? Here, the psalmist is ahead of us, almost as if he's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. He's way ahead of us because he says, he tells us that God is saying, I know you, and God is also saying, I will always be with you. Isn't this comforting that God can know us so completely and he is willing and eager to never, ever leave us? The psalmist begins an inquiry into the omnipresence of God. In the same way the Lord has searched him, he is now searching the Lord more accurately. He is searching, is there a place where the Lord is not? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. he's, He's pointing out these spiritual highs and lows. If I have the greatest Spiritual experience, the Lord is there with me. And when I am in the midst of the darkest, death-like spiritual experience, the Lord is there as well. If I go to the highest emotional places, the wings of the morning and the lowest, scariest, deepest, darkest emotional places, the depths of the sea where where no light seems to be getting at all. God is there in both places. And even in deep isolation, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night. Surely the darkness of my life is so dark that no light may enter. I know that the moment I flip a light switch, my dark room becomes light in my house. But the darkness in my life is so dark that my darkness enters in and the light switch does no good. And that's what we think. In my darkness, the Lord abandons me. But the psalmist says no. No. Even the darkness is not dark to the Lord. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, Lord. Let us, as we look at this this omnipresence of God that is geographical, emotional, spiritual, and relational here in this passage. Did you catch that? The omnipresence of God is geographical, It's emotional and spiritual, and it is relational. Notice what what kicks off this inquiry. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? God, am I able to escape you? If I make enough bad decisions, God, will I be far from you? If I cloak myself in my sin?" God, will you stop being my father? We have a phrase. I don't know if this phrase is unique to American Christianity or Western Christianity, but the phrase is, someone is far from God. And that phrase, in its literal syntax, is impossible. It is not distance that keeps people from the Lord. It is their own darkness. And here the psalmist says that when I surround myself with darkness, God, my darkness is no match for your light. We or people we love may live unaware of the Lord, apathetic to the Lord with selective hearing loss by ignoring or discounting His word, but no one is ever far from God. The psalmist appears to have tried many things. If I get myself as far away from Jerusalem as the depths of the sea, even there God's hand is going to be with me. If I take an Adam and Eve approach and try to hide from God, even there God is going to find me. My personal darkness, my pursuit of sin is not going to hinder God from getting to me. And maybe this is something as you're praying for your two to love. Maybe this is something you could be praying for those people. Not that they would be brought near to God. Because if we believe in the omnipresence of God, they're there. They're close to Him. They just don't know it. So let's pray that their darkness would be removed and the darkness around them would become light. And they would see the Lord. I hope you realize that this first half of Psalm 139 has been a tremendous rebuttal to the idea that if I am known, I will not be loved. Have you caught this? There's a tremendous rebuttal here because God has this unsearchable knowledge of us and He never leaves. More importantly, we who would be prone to wander, are unable to wander from the Lord. We are unable to wander from His presence. Here we see God saying, I know you and I am with you. God's knowledge of you Does not change his closeness to you. He is not scared of your shortcomings in whatever form they take. Our insecurities about ourselves when we come to the Lord saying, Lord, I'm not not whatever it is enough. And and if, if I'm truly known, I can't be loved at the same time. And God says, That's not true. I know you, I am always with you, and then he says, I made you on purpose. I made you on purpose, as we move to this next section. See, I think sometimes we're like, we, we get this mad scientist view of God as a creator, and he's like, oh, I'm creating stuff, and all of a sudden he's like, oh, How did that zebra get here? Like, I didn't even realize I made that. I just meant to have a a plain horse, multiple plain horses with with just all of them different colors, and here's one that just got in the blender the wrong way. God made you on purpose. Listen to this explanation of how God will always be with you. Darkness is light to you. Here's the explanation. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God will always be with you because He's your loving Creator. Think about this. The Lord knew you and was working on you before your mom took a pregnancy test. The Lord had started His work of building you before your parents knew you existed. God's knowledge of you predates your parents. He built you. He, as creator God, was involved in your neonatal development. The psalmist uses very intricate words here of hemming and knitting, very hands-on, Activities that are intentional require, they require thought and delicacy. They can't be ignored. They can't just be set in motion. We spend a lot of time belittling our bodies. We have joints that make unexplainable noises when we do just the simplest of movements. We can't rearrange the lumps in our body to fit that of a fitness model. We spend a lot of time comparing it to those who seem better off, whose form doesn't share the characteristics that we are self-conscious of in our own. That or after someone has treated us cheaply, we start to believe that our own bodies lack the dignity of other bodies. They lack the value that other people seem to have. Listen to the psalmist. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And he celebrates this. Wonderful are your works, Lord. And I just want to say, how many times, as someone who loves being outside in nature, how many times do we go somewhere, we see a landscape, that captures our eyes, whether it's fall colors or geographical features or a gigantic body of water or wildlife, and we say, wow, God is so awesome. You've made so many wonderful things. But we would never say that about ourselves. Yet not even Everest is made in the image of God, but you are. Everest is not eternal, but you are. that thunderstorm that you marvel at and praise God for watching the lightning and seeing that power is gone in a matter of hours and you will live eternally God cares about your body so much he's he's not only given you this body he's going to give you another body but we allow ourselves to be cheapened and think we're not worth that much do you guys ever watch antique roadshow There's two kinds of people on Antique Roadshow. There's the people who go to a garage sale with Antique Roadshow in mind. They spend $50 on a trinket to find out it's worth a nickel. There's those people. And then there's these other people who they see something at a garage sale that, uh, you know, it's, it's worth $5 at the garage sale, but boy, it sure is unique and funny. It's only five bucks, I'll buy it. And then they make it a doorstop. Or they inherit the doorstop from their parents. It's like, it was always ugly, but it was always there. It makes me think of my parents. And then they find out it's worth $10,000. Because here's the determining factor on the worth of something. How much is someone else willing to pay for it? 1 Corinthians 6.20 Tells us that our worth is the blood of Christ, because that's what the Lord paid to purchase us. You are not cheap. You are actually quite expensive, and you are worth every penny of that. You are worth every drop of that to the Lord. He was not suckered into buying the thing that looked interesting and is worth a nickel, nor Does he treat you of great value as a doorstop? He bought you. You are precious to him. He made you. He made you on purpose. He made you for purpose. He made you for his glory. All of this, I hope, is echoing in your heart, Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. nothing in our past, nothing in our future, nothing spiritual, nothing geographic can separate us from the love of God. And so the psalmist, there's the three points. Now here's the psalmist's reaction. And he leads us in application, if you will. That the personal, all-knowing, ever-present, intentional creator God is worthy of whole-life devotion. The psalmist leads the way. He starts worshiping. How precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I will awake and I am still with you, God. Every time I wake up, you're there with me. And so then he goes where all of us naturally do. God, would you destroy your enemies? Right? Isn't that your morning prayer every day? He is so consumed with the worship of God that he has a real and serious problem with those things that are contrary to the worship of God. And he has a real problem with those those people who are contrary to the worship of God. They speak malicious intent, they hate you, God. They're men of blood. They rise up against you. And in asking God to deal with them, his then immediate prayer is that God would deal with those things within himself. And this is a prayer that we, that, that's a good prayer for believers to go through. As I'm, as I'm working with people and they're going through major life changes, well, it's something in their job, something in their family, something medical. I think this is just a great prayer as we face major changes in our own lives. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, you know me completely. You'll never leave me. You have made me. Now, Lord, if there's anything in me that you need to see corrected, Lord, would you correct that? And when we take our burden of our insecurities to the Lord, we're no longer saying, oh, flesh and world, would you tell me what's wrong with me and how to fix it? But you're saying, God, you know me, you love me, you made me. And Lord, the the world is telling me there's all kinds of things wrong with me and it's confusing and it's loud and it brings me down. But God, if there's anything that you don't, you're not pleased with, would you change that in me? And we're entrusting ourselves, instead of entrusting ourselves to the world that says you have to be perfect and plastic, and always happy. We are entrusting ourselves to the one who made us, to the one who loves us no matter what, to the one who will never leave us, and and to the one who ultimately gave himself for us. Because here's the deal: the psalmist points us to the fact that as he's saying, I hate the enemies of God, he's saying, I have it within me to be an enemy of God. In fact, When we as believers are honest with our salvation, we need to say, I was an enemy of God. But He has made me His child. And so I can trust Him to be the one that molds me and shapes me instead of trying to force myself to be shaped and molded by the world and by my flesh. Because the Lord is the one who loves us completely who knows us completely, who will never leave us. So I invite you to know this love of God, to embrace the fact that the Lord knows everything in you, and he will never leave you. In fact, he went through great lengths to make you his own and to take you from being his enemy who would rise up against him to being his child who would be in lockstep with him. I pray that we would experience the freedom of God knowing us and loving us and always being with us and that He would unite our passions with Him. Seek this refining work. Seek this love of God. And don't settle for the world telling you over and over again that you need to be someone you're not or something you're not. Let's pray. Father God, your ways and your works and your knowledge are wonderful. You have fearfully and wonderfully made us. There's nowhere we can go where you are not. Lord, I'm so grateful that you would love me this way, that you would love my brothers and sisters this way. Lord, would you adjust our ears and our eyes and our minds to hear from you, to see what you see, to think about ourselves the way you think about us. Lord, as we praise you for your works, would we praise you for the work you've done in creating us, not in a pride, proud, boastful way, but in seeing your creativity, in seeing your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.